We are uh, moving on in our study of Job uh, today, and so um, I mentioned to you last week that the way that I'm doing this is we're working through um, the way that Samuel Ballantyne uh, considers the book of Job. It's, a, it's an interesting book that he has. It's part of a series where they're um, considering the personalities of different biblical figures. And uh, I reviewed Ballantyne's book for the Society of Biblical Literature back, gosh, it's been six or seven years ago. And when I finished the book, I, I did something I've never done before or since. I, I emailed him and I said, this is terribly unprofessional, but this is the best book I've read in a decade. Um, I said, you know, I, I've got two or three like little typos and things like that. If you ever do a second edition that, you know, you might want. I said, but that is not why I'm emailing. I'm, I'm just flabbergasted uh, at how uh, good this book is. Um, the, the range that uh, he is able to display from dealing with ancient sources up to modern film, I just, it's, it's just astonishing. Uh, it was actually quite humbling to, to read the work. I highly recommend it. And uh, if you have the outline for the study that we're doing, you can just pair it with the book and you can read a chapter a week and you will see that I am shamelessly uh, borrowing from it. Uh, one of our colleagues at Sanford said the key to teaching when you first get started is lie, cheat, and steal. Um, that, you know, just lie, pretend to the students that you know more about it than you really do. Oh, yeah, we're going to cover that uh, next week, uh, you know, kind of thing. Uh, when you get a question you don't know the answer to, cheat, you know, take a shortcut around something, steal, shamelessly borrow uh, from other people who have uh, uh, trod these paths before. So that's what uh, I'll be doing here. But it's a wonderful book. I couldn't recommend it highly enough to you. Samuel Ballantyne, Have You Considered My Servant Job? Is that a copy right there? Excellent. Um, so it it's a, it's a good read. It, it really is there. Well, to start off today, um, uh, an idea that I have is, you know, I, I like certain works that maybe have some depth to them. Um, there are some questions that they're, they're just settled. I, I, I made a list, for example, Die Hard is a Christmas uh, movie. Um, it, uh, see, that's the kind of elevated film stuff that I'm talking about with Ballantyne there. Um, uh, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Um, the Empire Strikes Back is the best of all of the Star Wars movies. Uh, all all right-thinking people know this. Uh, Yosemite Valley is the most beautiful place on earth. I, I had a conversation with someone one time, and they were, they were disagreeing with me. And I said, I, I don't understand. You, we have already demonstrated Yosemite is the prettiest place on earth, so your answer is by you know, definition incorrect when you say that it's somewhere else. Um, the designated hitter is an abomination, and it should not have been brought over to the National League. It should have been removed from the American League. Those are the kinds of settled questions that I, I think we could all agree on. Um, Sam is the main character of the Lord of the Rings. Um, that's, it's, it's not really, I mean, there are some people, God, benighted, uh, I think is the word that gets applied to them, that they think that maybe it's Frodo or, or Aragorn or even Gandalf. These, all of these answers are incorrect. It's Sam. Uh, Sam is obviously the main character. It was, it was the one thing that the, well, not the one thing. It was one of the things that the movies got wrong. The movies were far better than I had any hope that they would have been. The way that uh, Denethor dies was, you know, should have been like imprisonment for Peter Jackson for having done that. But beyond that, um, it, the only real thing that they missed was it's Sam. Sam is the main character of the books. But see, that's the one where it's interesting because you can actually start to debate that one a little bit. And say, well, no, wait a minute, I think, and no, no, wait a minute, I think. And you can actually have a good discussion 
about whether Sam is the main character or not. The Lord of the Rings is the kind of work that has enough depth to it that you can sit around and have discussions about it and so forth. I, I love C.S. Lewis. There are lots of works by C.S. Lewis that I like a great deal. I have to confess, and my students are horrified when I ever you know, admit this publicly, I never really got into the Chronicles of Narnia. And part of the reason I never really got into them was like, okay, so the, the lion's Jesus. Didn't see that one coming, um, you know, and, and, and so what now? You know, there's just, once you've kind of established that, it's okay, we're aces, we're good. Hope they find their way out of the wardrobe. And so it's, it's, it doesn't have the same depth to it that the Lord of the Rings has. You have to kind of tease it out and decide, well, who exactly is the messianic character in here? Is Bilbo or Gandalf, which one of those two is Moses? Or is it a combination? Because, you know, Gandalf's got the staff, but it's really more Bilbo than anybody else, and Frodo too, who kind of, well, you know, sort of gives all that he has to get the people to the promised land, but then can't go himself and has to sail off into the west. See, there's a, there's a depth there, which makes those works quite interesting. The, uh, there, there are other works that we can do that same thing for. You know, one of the, the wonderful things about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare is just so timeless. There's a, a recent book that's come out about it where, you know, everyone thinks that Shakespeare is writing about them and to them. Um, I, I'm forgetting her name, but she was the poet laureate um, that uh, Clinton put in. And she has a wonderful tale that she told when she was a little girl about a rabbit with floppy ears and it hung upside down and so they were able to hang straight. Her Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou. And she said, it is just obvious to me that Shakespeare was a black woman. And, and, you, know, and, and you go, well, I, I feel sure I would have been told. But what she means by that is that when she reads it, there's something that you can connect with. You, everyone can connect with something in Shakespeare and you can rattle it around, and you can ask questions about it, and you can interrogate it, and you can say, well, wait a minute, what is he doing with that? And questions come up. Is it okay for Romeo and Juliet to marry when they don't have their parents' permission there? Are they the ones responsible for all of the disasters that follow? Is it okay for Juliet to feign her death so that she can get out of the marriage to Paris? Is it okay for Lord Capulet to insist that Juliet marry Paris, all of these kinds of questions, and we could all have opinions on them, we could argue about them, but see, that's the key, is that we could argue. There are some things that we, we, we don't argue about. Is Cordelia at fault, in part, for her own situation? Granted that Lear is being ridiculous and asking for these fawning kinds of, you know, uh, protestations of love. And granted that Goneril and Regan are being just ridiculously obsequious in the way that they protest their love. But is Cordelia being obstinate in refusing to give even an inch to her father there? Does she bring on? See, these are the kinds of questions we could talk about. We can read and we can reread and we can read and reread again and we can read the characters and reread those characters again and this is what Job is. Everyone is always arguing and reading and rereading Job. They've been doing it for 2,500 years. We are not the first people to have to wrestle with who Job is and what Job's about and, 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 and 
what the, what the point of the book of Job is and, and what exactly does that word at the end mean there? People have been doing this from the moment Job was written. In fact, the, the first version of Job was likely not the book of Job as we have it today. The book of Job as we have it today is already several re-readings in to the book. The very first book of Job was probably just the prose didactic tale that's at the beginning and the end of the book of Job. The poetic dialogues, they come in later. That's someone rereading Job and saying, well, you know, I don't know how I feel about that didactic tale. Let's look at that from another angle. And then there's Elihu, and Elihu is probably another rereading of the book of Job where he comes in and says, well, I don't know how I feel about all of this talking here. And so Elihu tries to, uh, to add in a lot of talking on his own. One thing that I do like, because Elihu is my least favorite part of the entire book, um, is that uh, uh, many of the ancient interpreters said that Elihu was Satan, which is just about how I feel about Elihu, so I, I think that works quite well. Um, so, uh, but my point is, it's a rereading. They were rereading Job from the very start. So let's go back to the beginning and let's think about the first version of Job, which is this didactic tale. Now, I don't want to assume too much. Job's a tough book, and so it rarely gets preached. We all kind of know about Job in theory, but we don't get to walk through Job in detail too much. So let me walk through the, uh, the, the beginning and the end of Job to make sure we're on the same page when it comes to this didactic tale. If you have your Bibles, you can turn uh, to, to Job chapter 1, but I'll, I'll read uh, the text here for us as well. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Notice how everything works out to a ten in here. Seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So this is how our scene begins. And you'll have to watch, especially in the, uh, the prologue here, that the scene's going to go from earth to heaven, from earth to heaven, over and over again. We've started on earth with Job as the greatest man of the East. Remember we talked about one of the features of parables? Stylized language. There once was a man. And we talked about stylized language, well, not just stylized language, but how about hyperbole? Job's not just a, a, a wealthy guy. He's the greatest man in all of the East, and, and he's also not just great, but he's good. He's a paragon of righteousness here. We, we've already been told four times how good he is. He's upright, blameless, fears God, turns away from evil. This is the narrator's view of who Job is. But it goes further. If you look at verse 4, his sons used to go and hold feast in one another's houses in turn. They would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, who knows? It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. Job is offering sacrifices just in case. Who knows? 
but my children might ha have, have done something here. So, so here you've got the seven kids with their, or seven sons with their seven birthdays. And so you get seven feasts a year. And Job is so outrageously righteous that just in case, he's offering sacrifices there for everyone. And it's not just, oh, it just, it just happened to do it once. This is what Job always did. Job is a paragon of righteousness. And this is what's going to make him a target. Um, so, you know, there's the expression, the early bird gets the worm. The early worm also gets the bird. So, you know, that's why maybe the book of Ecclesiastes is like, don't be too righteous. You know, just kind of keep your head down um, is, is what Ecclesiastes says. It's an odd passage in Ecclesiastes to say something like that. It's like, really? Is that the way the Bible puts that? Um, he's just, just kind of just moderation is, is what we need here. Job is not about moderation when it comes to wealth or righteousness. So now the scene is going to shift to heaven. This is verse 6. Uh, it says, one day the heavenly beings, literally the, the sons of the gods, the divine beings there, came to present themselves before the Lord. And the Satan always has the word the in it when it's in the Hebrew Bible there. Satan is a, a word, well, I don't know. It's not time to talk about the Satan yet. That's for another lesson. Um, so we'll talk about the Satan, I think it's next week, and then Job's wife is the week after that. Uh, the, the Satan also came among them. The Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? The Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Boy, they just don't really sound like absolute mortal opponents in that conversation, do they? Hey, where you been? Oh, you know, going. That's next week, sorry. The Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth. We've, we've heard what's coming before. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Both the narrator and God agree on the character of Job. Blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. Then the Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And that's the second time we've heard the word curse, except we actually haven't heard the word curse at all in the text of Job. Job actually says bless, the, the text of Job. This is what you call a, a pious euphemism. They just did not want to put pen to paper and have the thought of someone cursing God. And so it says, perhaps my children have blessed God in their hearts. It's, they just didn't want to put the word curse, and so they put bless. Now, I am curious, and I ask this because when I ask my students, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But y'all are of a, of a certain age that perhaps you have a similar experience. When y'all were little, did anybody ever, I don't guess you had to be little, but I, I have heard the expression that somebody blessed somebody out. We, other people have heard this? Thank you. My students, they, I mean, that's, they have no idea what I'm talking about when I say such a thing. But I, that's another pious euphemism. You, when you say bless somebody out, what you really mean is curse somebody out. Some careful readings of Job have gone into figuring out that little expression in Southern English. So um, 
Well, the Southern English is wonderful for figuring out how the Bible works. That when, when Moses in chapter 3 is shepherding the sheep, it says that he's on the backside of, of the wilderness. This is the Southernism, middle of nowhere. That is what it means. Uh, the, the Hebrew and Southern English, they, they work together quite well. Matt can attest. He took my class, right? Um, it says y'all, for heaven's sake. By the way, <laughs> there's a certain point in time when with Job and other biblical names, that early interpretations of Job, they, they come up with nicknames for the characters. And so the way that it would work for us is so like uh, my, uh, my, my brother's name is Jonathan. When he was little, they called him John John. Other people, they, they won't get called Jonathan or John John, but they'll get called Johnny. And, and we'll have like Elizabeth can become Lizzie. And so we'll put that E on the end of a word. What they do in Hebrew with some of these names is they duplicate the last letter. Job, I promise, as God is my witness, at a certain point in interpretive traditions becomes Jobob. <laughs> Greatest man of the East? No. Greatest man of the Southeast, maybe. <laughs> but, but he becomes Jobob. It's just glorious. I don't have time to do this, but let's keep going. All right. So, he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well. All that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan's not the only character that we'll have to discuss further along the way here. My goodness, what's going on in that verse? Very well. Do what you want. Just don't touch him. Yikes. All right. We've been, to, uh, we've been on earth. We went up to heaven. Now we're back to earth. Look at verse 13. One day, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians, it's followers of Saban, I think is the, the, the name here. It's a, I'm, I'm just the messenger. Um, the, the, the Sabians fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. Do you hear the stylized language in there? While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. In the course of a conversation, Job has lost all of his possessions, all of his animals, all of his servants, and now all of his children. And what is Job's response? Verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Hmm. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, there, there are two parts to this. One is, let's, let's kind of explore the metaphor that he uses when he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. You have to piece that one out. It's making a connection between his mother's womb and the grave. 
And so he, he came naked from his mother's womb. He's going to return to his mother's womb, meaning the grave. Um, and so it's, it's kind of that ashes to ashes, dust to dust kind of language that's there. That's the metaphor that he's using. I'm more interested, though, in the the Lord gave and the Lord taken, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is a righteous man, but I think Job's in denial. I think that to lose everything and your response is, well, God gave it, God took it, praise God. As, uh, as one author has said, uh, Job is, uh, he's positively saintly. Is he even human? This is an awfully stoic response to losing everything. God gave, God took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. The text says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. It actually kind of is a, a, a kind of potent line right there because it's going to make us wonder what's going to happen when we get to the, uh, the poetic dialogues. How will the narrator think of those himself? All right, we've been on earth, now we go back to heaven. Job chapter 2, one day the heavenly, you've heard this before, I believe, talk about stylized language. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? The Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. The Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Boy, we're going to have to come back to that line too, aren't we? My goodness. Then the Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin, all that people have, they will give to save their own lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well, he's in your power, only spare his life. Wow. So now, back to earth. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. The, the potsherd, I, I, I always, you know, try to, to describe it to my students. Say this is where you, you have like a broken piece of pottery and you use it to scrape yourself. And they have this confused look on their face. I say, have you never had like a mosquito bite or something where instead of taking your hand and scratching it, you take like your student ID card or something and scratch it and they're like, oh yeah, I guess I have to. Well, so this is the idea, except Job is struggling so much that it's from the, the, the crown of his head to the sole of his, his foot. His entire body is racked with some sort of skin disease that gives him pain and, and ostracization and, and, and it itches. And, and so he, he's scraping himself, trying to find some relief and finding none while he sits among the ashes. His wife is going to counsel him. It says, uh, verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. Now you know what she actually says. Bless God and die is the way that it reads in Hebrew. We'll come back to this. Uh, Mrs. Job will get an, an entire week. She actually has a name in um, 
Sitodros or something like that in church tradition. Um, and we'll come back to that one. But it says, uh, he said to her, you, now, ladies, you're not allowed to like heap invective on Job when he says this and say, sick him, Satan. Um, it's sick him, the Satan, uh, when you do this. He said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Is that the way that's supposed to work? <laughs> God gives you good stuff, so God's supposed to give you bad stuff too. That's, that's the, I don't think that's right. That we're, well, we get good stuff from God, we get bad stuff from God, praise God. I think Job is still in denial, frankly. But of course, when I say that Job is in denial, I'm rereading the book. I'm rereading the book in light of the poetic dialogues. Because I don't know that that's exactly how the original version of the book would have put it. They would not have thought that Job was in denial. They would have thought Job was right where he ought to be. And the ones who are going to end up being wrong are going to be the three friends. So let's, let's see how they end up wrong. Job's three friends, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamatite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. I had a, I shouldn't tell this story. I'll never make it through it. <laughs> we had a dear friend in uh, Boston. Um, and uh, God bless him. He was just, he and his wife both, they were just weird. I mean, they were just, they, they, uh, they marched to the, the beat of a different drummer. Uh, they really did. Um, and, uh, but, but they were delightful people. They were a lot of fun to be around. Um, and uh, in the denomination that I grew up in, it was called the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, one of the things that we usually did, not every church did it the same way, but we would do uh, the Lord's Supper uh, the first Sunday of every month. And uh, usually afterwards, if someone wanted uh, for the elders to pray for them for, you know, a, just a regular prayer request or sickness or things like that, then, then we would pray for them. And Bill came up to the front, and uh, I was one of the elders, and so I was there with uh, another one. And he said, well, I went to the doctor, and uh, he said that I've got about six weeks to live. This is just out of the blue. I mean, it was just like the, you know, the congregation is sitting there just like you. The pianist is playing, and, and people are coming forward just for, you know, to, if, if the elders want to pray for them or something like that. And this is what he says. Well, I did not know that Bill had had cancer before and then had gone into remission and had recovered so well that he actually like ran in the Boston Marathon uh, after uh, he had recovered. And so while this was completely out of the blue for me, it wasn't as out of the blue for the other elder who was there with me. And Bill proved to be about right uh, in terms of the time that he had left. And, and I remember <laughs> he went with us uh, a couple of weeks later on a youth camping trip where we went to uh, Cape Cod and we had the youth group there and the kids were out playing somewhere and so he's talking and he, he's, it'll give you an insight to the sort of character that Bill was. He was uh, lamenting the fact that the chemotherapy drugs that he was on had robbed him of his ability to taste salt. 
And so he said, we went out to dinner and uh, there was this, there was a steak and it, it had a bechamel sauce. And you know, the, the, the way that the bechamel is supposed to work is the, the cream comes together with the saltiness and it's just the right point. And when it's on the beef and then it's this, and I, and I, I can't taste the salt and it's, it's very frustrating. And the very next sentence says, but we, we did get some good news. I have more vacation time stocked up with my job than I thought. So when I'm gone, Barb is going to get more money from the company. And I'm like, Bill, I can't do this. I can't go from Bushamel sauce that you can't taste the salt in, but Barb's going to get more money when you pass away shortly. I just, but this is just who he was. He was a character and he was a lot of fun. We went to his house. They had a weird house, just like you would expect. When you open the front door, you walked into the kitchen. <laughs> and so you, ent- it's just the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. You walked into the kitchen, and uh, the hospice people were there. And they said, when you go to see him, just uh, don't make loud noises, because it kind of bothers him. And I said, sure. So. went into the next room. I had driven to Bill's house. I had walked into Bill's house. I had been told by the hospice people, this is what you're gonna, you know, do when you go in. If I had not driven there myself, I would not have realized that that was my friend. He wasn't a big guy, but maybe he weighed 75 pounds, his head lolled to the side, his thumb on the morphine drip, just pressing it constantly without stopping because of the pain that he was in, trying to get more relief than the machine would give him. I had all these things that I thought I would say to Bill and how I would pray with him. I couldn't say a word. When Job's friends arrive, they don't even recognize him. And their response, it says, they raised their voices and wept aloud They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads and sat with them on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word. For they saw that his suffering was very great. And Job's a parable, but Job's a parable is ripped right out of the pages of real life. Parables are true. They're not historical, but they're true. They capture something of what we've all experienced and what we'll all experience in the future. Death comes for each one of us, unfortunately. Now, that's the conclusion of the prologue to Job. It's the end of the prose 
that's at the beginning, once we get to chapter 3, everything switches over to poetry. And that poetry is that set of poetic dialogues that will be there as the characters uh, speak back and forth to one another. But there is more prose in the book. And that prose is at the very end of the book. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn all the way to the very end, to chapter 42. And it's in chapter 42, verse 7, that the prose picks up. And a lot of scholars suggest that in the original form of Job, there may actually be a scene that's missing from what we have now. And what that scene would be is that eventually the friends do the same thing that Mrs. Job did. And they encourage Job to curse God. And Job refuses. And you might go, well, where would we get such a crazy idea that they would do such a thing? Well, listen to the way that uh, chapter 42, verse 7 starts. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, My wrath is kindled against you and your two friends. Well, my goodness, <laughs> why? If you read the poetic dialogues, they've done nothing but defend God's honor, so why would God be upset at them there? It says, uh, you have not spoken rightly concerning me as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has done. So Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Amatite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So it may be that in the first form of Job, that the way the story works is that we've got our earth to heaven kind of thing, that Job is righteous on earth, the Satan, you know, uh, has... Uh, permission from God to strike Job's family. We go back to earth and Job's family is stricken, but Job still praises God. We go back to heaven and uh, Satan is given permission to strike Job. We go back to earth and now Job himself is stricken. Uh, and then maybe the friends do what Job's wife did and encourage uh, God or Job to curse uh, God. In fact, it could even be that in the original form, it's the friends instead of Job's wife who do the encouragement to curse there, and the, Job's wife is a later addition uh, once they've changed it. Job refuses. He remains steadfast. He doesn't speak against God. And when we get to the, the end of the story, the way that it concludes is God is upset at uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and says, you need to have Job pray for you. And then the very last part, which I won't take the time to read all of, is Job is restored back to his former position. He gets uh, more children and more wealth and lives to see his great-great-great-grandchildren and so forth there. So I think there's a decent chance that this was the first form of the story of Job. Now it's not the form of the story of Job that we have today because the version we have today inserts that long section from chapter 3 to chapter 42 verse 6 of those poetic dialogues in there. In other words, that would be a rereading of the book of Job, and frankly, it's a rereading that we like more. As moderns, as post-enlightenment kind of people here, we like the wrestling part of Job. We, we like kind of the, the not, uh, you know, all's well that ends well sort of story there. Uh, we, 
And, and it's tempting to look at it and say, well, I guess they've bodlerized Job and given it a happy ending. You know, Romeo and Juliet end up living happily ever after, except that it's not bodlerized. The happy ending version of Job was the first version. How fascinating that a later biblical author came through and put that quite complicated set of dialogues into that very easy story that's there. I find that to be just amazing that it happened that way. We like the complicated Job, but truth be told, for most of Jewish and Christian history, it's been the patient version of Job that has won out. There's only one reference to Job in the New Testament. That New Testament reference is one from the book of James. You'll recognize it. It says, indeed, we call blessed uh, those who showed endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job. There are some lines which you just shouldn't change. You, when, you, when, when, when David wrote the, the 23rd Psalm, we all know that he did it in the King James English. It's just so obvious. I, you know, there's certain things you don't need to change. Um, there is no reason to change, uh, you know, certain kinds of passages. And, and this is one from the King James that we ought to have. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. See, that's the way we know that line. Even if endurance is better, we should have kept patience. Um, we're losing a common scriptural language. You have heard of the patience of Job. The patience of Job is an aphorism. That we can use. I have used this line of my wife before when uh, she teaches kindergarten, and I'll say, you know, she is just she is perfect for that role. She when you know from from eternity past, God saw through the halls of time and said, she shall be a kindergarten teacher. I mean, she's just meant to be that. And I'll say one of the reasons is she has the patience of Job. All those little knuckleheads and nose miners doing all the stuff that they do, and she's just little pats on the heads and so forth. I, my, my arm just begins to like involuntarily want to smack some little kid right upside the head. I couldn't do it. And she's just, oh, dear, you know, she, patience of Job. I mean, it's how she puts up with me. Um, the, the patience of Job, it's, it's like a, it's just a watchword that we know of here. That's the version of Job. It has dominated most of the interpretation of Job for church history. The Job of the dialogues is fairly impatient if we really read him. Patience is not the word that you would put on him there. So where does all of this start? Well, it starts with a, a work that's called the Testament of Job. There's a lot of uh, material that uh, comes right after the close of the writing of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, some of it actually comes a little bit after the New Testament as well, but it's all in that same kind of time frame from, say, you know, two centuries before the time of Christ to two centuries after. And so you just have this profusion of literature that gets written, and a lot of it is interpretive literature. But they don't just write like a commentary the way that eventually uh, Jews and Christians will. The way that they do it is they'll, uh, they'll kind of put it into a narrative framework. And so you have things like the Testament of Abraham or the Testament of Moses, the Testament of almost every one of the sons of Jacob is going to get one. And there's one called the Testament of Job. It's part of the pseudepigrapha there. And it would be a way of retelling the story of Job so that you can emphasize what you think are the major ideas in it. And it's interesting, sometimes passages in the New Testament 
will refer to things that are in the pseudepigrapha. You've uh, perhaps heard in 2 Timothy, there's a reference to Janus and Jambres. Ever seen those words in there? Those are a couple of characters who do not appear in the story of the Exodus. They occur in a pseudepigraphical book, uh, but uh, 2 Timothy refers to it. You know the, the little line in the book of Jude when it talks about Michael and the devil fighting over the body of Moses? It's not in Deuteronomy. Uh, when Moses dies, that's from a pseudepigraphical book. And so there are a few places where you can tell that uh, New Testament authors even would be influenced by these sorts of things. Um, and and the, the testament of Job is this sort of thing. How does that testament retell Job's story? Well, it's different in a few ways. For one thing, Job knows from the very outset that he's going to suffer. And he knows why he's going to suffer. And he knows that if he endures, he will be rewarded in the end. Well, how, how does he know all this? Job finds out in the story that there's a particular temple that is dedicated to Satan. And the angel who tells him this warns Job, if you do something about it, you're going to pay a price for doing it. But Job is determined, and so he, uh, he takes 50 youths with him, and they destroy the temple. And after they have destroyed the temple, the devil comes and is going to, uh, to punish Job for having done so. Uh, the, the story gives tremendous emphasis to Job's generosity. As part of his piety, it's not just the, the fact that he you know, does sacrifices and things, but he's wealthy and it really emphasizes how generous he is. And this is important, Job never complains. So the whole poetic dialogues are gone. Uh, when they retell the story, Job never complains against God at all. At the end, he's restored back to his former state and, and he, he resumes all of the charity that he can. And his primary virtue is patience. Patience is the watchword for the Testament of Job. There are three words that the Testament of Job will use that kind of capture this idea. Uh, the, I won't bother you with the Greek words. I'll, I'll say them, but you don't need to know them. But uh, you don't need to know them. Like, as if I'm going to give you a final exam at the end of the summer, you know. With a, you're, like my students, is this going to be on the test, you know, kind of thing? And they take the black highlighter out and, and, you know, mark out whatever they don't have to know. It's like, for heaven's sake, don't learn something you don't have to know for the test. Um, I digress. Um, so uh, see, see what I mean? Patience of Job. I don't have it. Um, the, the first word is uh, hypomene. Hypomene is the word for patience. But it's, it's more active than regular patience. It's not a passive word. It's this idea of standing firm in the face of opposition. It is, in fact, that word that gets used in the New Revised Standard, endurance, that sense of patience. It's a word that has to do with standing your ground, a word that has to do with standing firm, not backing down. This is the word that will end up motivating people, say, in the Maccabean Revolt, when Antiochus Epiphanes is going to torture them for not renouncing their religion. That word, patience, is what they'll use. What it really means is they're willing to endure whatever assaults and tortures that he can throw at them. They're not going to renounce their faith. The second word is karteria. Karteria is the word for stamina. It's this idea of, it even has a, a sort of physical toughness element to it. Um, in the, uh, the Testament of Job, Job is described as if he were an athlete. 
In fact, that's actually, it's a Greek word, athletes is the word that's used there. He's someone that in a, a physical wrestling match has the stamina to outlast his, his opponent. And that's the way that uh, the, the Satan will be described in the Testament of Job, that there's a, a, as if it were a wrestling match, and Job has more stamina than he does. And eventually, Satan will have to walk away defeated. The last of these is macrothumia. Macrothumia is the word for long-suffering. The, uh, the book really emphasizes his long-suffering. In the Testament of Job, Job sits on the ash heap for 48 years. That's how long his suffering lasts. And in the entire time of that 48 years, that long-sufferingness, Job restrains his feelings and his anger. He never speaks out against God. So how does that image of Job's patience then kind of take on a life of its own in later traditions? Well, for one thing, Job becomes cast as this heroic figure. Uh, the, uh, the church father Origen describes Job in the third century as the most strong athlete of the faith. Uh, Jerome will call him the athlete of the church. And you look at it, if, if you don't know that background from the Testament of Job, you go, there must be a chapter that I missed. I don't was there something in there about like he was running and this happened or he, he was doing something? This it's that athlete, it's a wrestler who is using his stamina and endurance to take on Satan there. You can see how that would quickly move into martial imagery if you are the athlete of the church. And so, for example, Gregory the Great in the sixth century, when he talks about Job, he says, when you, when you describe a wrestler, usually you talk about their broad chest and their strong arms. Job's wrestling will take place in the spiritual realm and that's why we're introduced to his spiritual, physical feats. He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. It's describing him, you know, in this corner is the way that they're describing him there. Job will eventually become the patron saint of the Crusades and the, middle, uh, the medieval knights because he's the one who he heroically divests himself when he gives up his clothing, when he gives up his wealth and suffers there, he'll be this model of spiritual endurance there. As, as Job fights Satan, the knights fight the Saracen is the idea. And so that's why Job becomes them. It even makes the way for it. Uh, uh, Ballantyne makes an interesting point about this, that uh, one way of depicting these medieval knights is Galahad, who's just perfect. But Galahad's a bit too perfect. And so Lancelot comes along eventually, and Lancelot's a flawed character because of his affair with Guinevere, but he's also a restored character. And that's how they'll eventually deal with Job's dialogues, is that, well, this was his moment when he was suffering, but then he was restored at the end in the same way that the knights are. All of this seems far afield in some respects from the book of Job, doesn't it? But you know, I, I think we ought to, I think, make some space for these kinds of readings. The reason I think this is because, well, well, first of all, go back to what I said at this very start. Job's a complicated book that's subject to reading and rereading and reading again. And patience is an element of the book of Job. Without question, there is that 
Patience, especially if you think of patience as endurance and stamina and long-suffering. And you can understand how people would have a certain vision of who Job was and maybe not emphasize other characteristics. Don't we do the same thing to some degree? My vision of certain historical characters comes almost entirely from, well, things that were written long after those historical characters. I don't have the faintest clue what Henry V said to his troops at Agincourt. But I know what comes up in my mind when I think about Henry V at Agincourt. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. I, well, I, I didn't get that from Henry V. I got it from the other Henry V, the one that Shakespeare wrote. I do not have any idea what Horatius said when he was standing on the bridge trying to protect Rome so that the, the, the Etruscans didn't cross the Tiber, but I know what comes to my mind. Then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate, to every man upon the earth death cometh soon or late, and how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? That's what I assume that Horatius said. Said, but I, but he didn't. But we are influenced by later depictions of characters. What I know about Mark Antony, I know from Marlon Brando, as he delivers the, the funeral oration over the deceased Julius. There, it. These are later readings, but they're not necessarily wrong readings. Patience and endurance is part of what the book of Job is. And isn't it interesting that the New Testament will pick up on all of those same terms that the Testament of Job did? How many verses do we know that talk about endurance, that talk about stamina as we run the race, that talk about patience, that talk about long-suffering? It's not the only reading of Job, but it is a reading of Job and a reading of Job that deserves to be heard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the saints who have gone before us and have toiled away at reading this book of Job. Even if we don't land in the same place they do, help us to hear their words and to share in their virtues of patience and endurance and stamina as we follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name.